1: seven four two zero good morning gentlemen good to see you all i think we're missing a player here what's going on
2: uh, yeah don's uh, don's uh missing in action but we're we're filling
1: in the best we can here all right so uh let's talk about this because there's been changes to our money it may not affect the value but certainly the appearance of it uh, it doesn't change the value to, now that we have a king on no it, it?
3: oh you're asking the best guy for that right now Yeah, you, <laughs> yeah, yeah you love your yeah. cash
1: <laughs> yeah, I love uh, I love looking at
2: money and uh, I love money. So, yeah, the coins uh, are going to be changing in the next couple months. So King Charles will be on our whether it's a, a portrait of him or or some kind of significance. Um, the they were talking about the cipher or something like that, the royal cipher. So mm-hmm. he's got his initials and the crown and all kinds of interesting things. But uh, in the next couple of months, I guess the coins are going to be switching. And then the $20 bill, which has the Queen on it now, uh, will be changing in the next couple of years, possibly. So they've got to get a portrait done and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's a long way. Lengthy process, so yeah. As my uh, my
1: wife, as my wife would say, uh, I hope the man gets a nice haircut and trims the eyebrows before he poses (laughs) for that picture. That is what she noticed during the coronation. It's like you're you're kidding me. That's all you noticed. The man had a hairy neck. He needed his neck shaved. Did 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 you guys both get up for it? Did you guys see it? No, 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 no. no. I missed it. No,
2: no. I think our (laughs) listeners probably got up to listen to our show. So uh,
1: yeah, that's it. Good point. Yeah, they may have they may have tuned in. And on that note, we're going to talk about, Mitch is going to talk about uh, five steps to financial readiness for new parents.
3: Yeah. So new parents, I know my my mom may listen to this and Mother's Day is tomorrow. So she's also missing in action, but I hope she has a great Mother's Day where she is. Uh, Many people around my age, they're getting married and there's this common topic right now that's coming up uh, of having kids. And actually the most common month of the year for a birthday is September. So we're midway there, which means we're midway to people having their kids and lots of questions about their finances and having a kid. And that's one of the most biggest, that's one of the biggest concerns when it comes to parenthood. And there are many memories and looking back, having kids. And I know there's so many things you have to finance for. I know, Jay, right now you've got two two kids that are either in university or about to go to university. And I know we've talked about that and how it can get expensive. Thankfully, your your daughter's a genius and great at volleyball. So she's going to be chipping her way there on her own. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. So there, there are lots of costs to raise a child and to educate them as well. Adding, adding up everything from daycare to diapers, hockey equipment, or even the added cost of vacation for three or four instead of two. Everything adds up and having an extra mouth to feed can certainly be stressful. There are also unforeseen events as well. I you know I have a dog. It's, it's not a child, but they do have unforeseen expenses. Uh, like my dog might eat something and next thing I have to go to a vet, which is a quick bill right there. And kids aren't too far different. Maybe they they eat something. You got to go there and get care as well, right? Yeah, they, they
2: they generally don't eat something. They eat everything out of the fridge is what they do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Including the packaging. <laughs>
3: Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. <not. laughs> yeah, you just went through the the teenage years, so I'm sure your fridge got emptied pretty quick there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But this is why you have contingency contingency plans and easy access to emergency funds are important, as they can really protect your family and your budget. So here are five steps to make sure your growing family is financially prepared. And the first one is to rethink your financial plan. If you don't currently have a plan, it's even more important to create one. And one thing to add or to alter to your plan is to start a baby focused plan and take a fresh look at your spending priorities. Discuss income with your partner and understand the impacts of taking paid or unpaid parental leave. Also potentially the possibility of single income living. Having a financial planner can really help with this as we go through income expenses with all of our clients. Cash flow is a large part of any financial plan. These can be all altered at any given time. I know we change all of our plans on the fly and we create different scenarios with our living plan portal, which is what it's called now. And it changes things very rapidly. So if a client wants to say, well, what if we go for a vacation for three or four or even five? Maybe they have triplets. I just I was just with someone that had triplets yesterday. And wow. it, it wow. drastically Changed their plan, and I know he's he's not golfing as much as he'd like anymore. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that's another thing that alters your plan is unforeseen circumstances. He didn't think he was going to have triplets. It doesn't run in his family, but hey, it happens. And you want to know the what-if scenarios, and our planning software is very good at changing that rapidly, rapidly, which can add some clarity and some confidence, uh, which creates comfort when you're going forward with your planned or uh, with your planned childbirth. So this is a big decision and seeing it all on a screen is it it creates confidence in your financing. So another thing to do is to start saving. So you want to it's good practice to set up separate accounts and start depositing into a side account for unforeseen child expenses, whether that's in a TFSA or even just in a bank account that's maybe in a hopefully a high interest uh, savings account where you can earn some interest and it's going to grow for you. But even if it's not, just putting it away and counting it as a bill payment just to get good practice so that when you do have that child, the money is you're already used to it not being spent on stuff for your lifestyle. And it's going into this child account that's being used for their lifestyle or something that they need. So it's also beneficial to apply for the child benefit, the maximum annual amount a family can receive for a child. Under six is $6,500 roughly. And from age six to 17, the family can receive up to 5500 annually. And that's also tax-free. So that's a nice little uh, gift from the government there. You don't get too many things tax-free from them. Uh, so this is all calculated off family income levels, but most families with incomes below 200000 will receive at least some money. There are calculators online to see what you'd be receiving and then... You apply online on the Government Canada website and then you'll start receiving it. So these extra funds can certainly make a large difference in cash flow for raising a child. The funds, like I said, they're tax free and even if you do not need the funds for day to day expenses, potentially adding it to a child's RESP can be a great plan. And that brings me to number three, save specifically for college or university. This is something it shouldn't be understated as university is a massive expense and it should be started as soon as possible. Uh, as soon as the child gets a social insurance number is when you can start the RESP, and that's for sure what we recommend because the compound interest of putting it away, just it makes a world of a difference rather than starting late. So a post-secondary education can cost well over $100,000 at this point.
2: Yeah it's interesting we we see a lot of our clients maxing out these RESP plans that the the government puts in place and, and it's nice it's it's a great plan but it's it's still falling short of exactly what's available or what's needed for that that tuition you mentioned a hundred thousand dollars which isn't far off maybe even more and we're seeing people that max out their resps are only having 60 or 70 thousand dollars saved in their resps and they've done all their the right things and maxed out but at the end of the day they're still falling short because they don't have enough money saved so that's one thing to do definitely the, the the resps but uh saving saving a little extra definitely wouldn't hurt
1: And I can't stress enough as, um, you know, having two kids that are just uh, one in university and one just about to go. uh, If you don't think you have the money when they're born, you don't have the money when they're 18 and 17 and 20 either. So uh, having that done ahead of time and it just being there when you need it, it is such a relief. And I can't stress enough what a great idea these are. Yeah. Yeah. So the max max grant that you can
3: get is five hundred dollars and that's you have to put in twenty five to get that Uh, and so you're going to get three thousand dollars every year when you do that and it's so much like it's easy to say but it's a lot it it really is easier to put away a hundred dollars a month rather than trying to catch up in 10 years and you can only catch up one year at a time and the mixed compound interest of those years is just it's massive because uh, you want your money consistently working for you And by maximizing the RESP, I know, Jay, you mentioned the difference of starting late, and you may only have 70 versus 100. Well, 100 is actually what school might cost now. So if someone my age is having a kid right now, well, they're not going to start school for about 18 years, and that school could cost 150, could cost 200,000, it really depends how inflation and schooling costs goes. And if your money is just sitting in a bank account, not earning interest, it's actually losing the potential opportunity of growing to keep up with the cost of school. So you want to put it away so it's actually going to earn more uh, than the school price is actually going to be growing. So that's really what you want to start doing there. And uh, the RASP, they really should start putting, uh, allowing more grant. It doesn't seem like the grant has grown. I'm not too sure when the last time the amount of grant, has grown because I know the max that you can get right now is six thousand five hundred, and actually no, seven thousand two hundred. Sorry, and that's not the most that you can get. And I'm not too sure. Jay, do you remember the last time it grew? No, but, the
2: the the contribution limits uh, per year increased. I, want, I off the top of my head, I want to say about fifteen years ago, um, from two thousand to twenty five hundred. But that seven thousand two hundred's been a stagnant number for a long time. So, yeah they um, they need to to look at other ways. To, to start bumping up that whether it's increasing the grant or increasing the amount that you can tax shelter. They definitely should consider that seeing how, you know, tuition back 30 years ago was $1,300. And now it's it's closer to $10,000, right? So yeah. uh, in 30 years, times have changed. And like you said, inflation, um, people that are having children now um, 20 years from now, when, the, when, when the kids are at university age or 18 years from now, tuition could be t- double or triple what it is today. So.
3: Yeah, the the grant and the amount that you put in is not keeping up with how much the school is. So if they should be starting to increase that, at least let it keep up with inflations, because technically that amount of grant, the value of how much that could be put towards their education has actually gone down because the cost of mm-hmm. education has gone up so rapidly. And that's stayed the same ever since I've started um, doing RESPs, since I've seen them, they've been the exact same. But oh, I'll leave that for another day. Let's go to number four here. Uh, plan for the unexpected. Most parents are pretty young when they first have their kids and lost to not think about their own death, which means most of them think they're far too young for a will. With with a baby added to the, to the mix, a will is extremely important. It's definitely time to drop a will and review, review your estate plan. And you want to get a financial planner that's a CFP. Because they're gonna analyze your will, they're gonna make sure that it's done properly, um, or at least review the will that you have done. And they can help give suggestions as to what you should do in terms of your financial plan for your will. So you don't want, so it's still important to have a will when you don't have kids, but it's even more important when you do have your first kid and more kids on top of that. And number five, protect your family. If you have a group plan at work for life insurance, check your health, disability, and and adding more life insurance coverage. You want to be sure that you have enough coverage for your family. Uh, Insurance is more important now that there is a child in the mix. If you're to both pass away, there's so many needs that need to be in place for that kid, whether that's education, childcare, the house, Uh, There's so many expenses that obviously that child who's just been born is not going to be able to pay for themselves. So you, you need to have life insurance in place. It's extremely vital when you add kids to the mix there.
1: We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Mitch Fox and Jay Llewellyn are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at DonFox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. A quick break here, and we're coming right back.
0: You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified,
1: All right, we're going to talk about Canadians not really understanding their finances. I guess, are you surprised,
2: Jay? No, not at all. Not at yeah. all. Don, Don, Mitch, Gary, and I, we see people come into the office all the time. And, you know, really astute people, really smart people, people with lots of letters behind their names that are a lot longer than what we've got. And they just don't understand their finances. They just don't get it. And it's just, there's a reason behind it, or the reason I think there's a reason behind it is they they just don't care. Um, they're busy with their lives. Mitchell was talking about people with young families. People have kids, people have jobs, people have lawns to take care of, hot tubs to take care of, whatever else there is going on in their lives. And there's a lot going on and finances seem to take a back burner. So there was a study that was done from the World Financial Group. And they said less than um, less than four out of 10 respondents indicated they have a financial plan or understand their finances period so I'm looking at it saying okay if there's only four and ten so forty percent of the people have a financial plan or think they have a financial plan and then when we have people come into the office when they bring their financial plan it's really just an investment statement it's not actually a financial plan so the understanding of what actually is a financial plan is is also a concern and and that's a lack of understanding as well uh, another thing that, that that was brought up in the study was um 70 70- percent Percent of the participants in the study um, said they have a tough time managing their day-to-day finances, and this was a wide range of people making forty thousand to four hundred thousand. So seventy percent of those people have a tough time managing their day-to-day, and it doesn't mean they can't pay their debts or pay their bills. It was more in line with they just have a tough time managing everything. There's so many things coming in and going out; they just have a tough time managing it. So, you know, when we sit down with our clients, that's that's probably the number one thing we look at is a is a budget and go through what an analysis of what's going on with their finances, gives people a kind of a reality check of what they're spending their money on. And it's not, we're not down to the penny necessarily, but down to the dollar pretty much on every one of those, on every one of our meetings. and and going through what's important to the client and what's not important to the client and you know, what's important to the husband or what's important to the wife. So a lot of things come into play when we're going through sitting through um, meetings with clients, but letting them or trying to get them to understand when they sit down with us is, is, is a really difficult task. And that's, that's part of our job. So the day-to-day bills, that's one of them investments. People just don't understand their investments, what they have, what they're doing, how they work, Um, retirement planning, pensions, people really have a, 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 a lot lack of knowledge with their pensions. You know, a lot of people that have these government pensions, OMERS or or, or, or teachers' pensions, these are these are huge assets, millions of dollars in these plans um, for for individuals, and they just don't understand how they work. So it's it's definitely wise to sit down with someone and understand what you actually have before, you know, that day at 55 or, or 60 when you want to retire and, and you realize, oh, wait a minute, my pension is not going to give me as much as I thought. I thought it was going to be taken care of. So definitely, Definitely, uh, an understanding of pensions, estate planning, risk management—all those things are big issues that that come up that people aren't aren't necessarily um, aren't top of mind. They're not they're not thinking about it all the time because, like I said, they've got other things on their mind, and finances aren't one of them um aren't, aren't top of mind for everyone so you know you, you've got to sit down with an advisor um, if you're if you're not going to spend the time yourself there are a lot of people that do it themselves and and some of them do it very well but there's a lot of people that have to sit down with an advisor or it's just, just not going to get done and a lack of planning is 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 not a not a result or not an not a uh, not an answer to the problem so sitting down with a financial planner I was with friends last weekend and they said you know the reason a lot of people don't sit down with a financial planner is because they think it's too expensive. Well, I'm here to dispel the mist. It's not too expensive. People that do it on their own, it costs almost the exact same amount to do it on your own or with, with an advisor. Um, so there is some, some lack of transparency in our industry where, where people think that dealing with an advisor costs a lot of money. So, um, I suggest that you sit down with someone and see what, what kind of, what kind of fees are involved, um, before you uh before you cast that that stone uh, so transparency so yeah financial services historically done a very poor job on transparency however however in the last few years drastic improvements uh through reg- regulations and reporting most statements or most investment statements that you have will have all your fees listed on the Statement whether it's on the front page or the back pay- page, um, it, it's somewhere in there, so you can see exactly what you're paying for. Um, so I, I really uh, give credit to the industry that they're they're starting to to put it front and center and say, hey, this is what you're paying for. You better you better be getting the right, right service or the exact service that you think you're paying for. Um, trust. You have to trust your advisor. That's one of the biggest things that people can't find someone that they trust. So if you if you actually trust someone um, to invest or or to to Help you with your finances. That's the first. Step. If you don't trust someone, then yeah, it's very difficult to get some advice from someone that you don't trust. Um, again, coming down to to that trust factor, you can you can always have that trust at one hundred percent, but if you don't have that trust with one hundred. Percent of someone, you you definitely need to look elsewhere. Start looking for someone else that you can trust. Um, again, you're paying for those fees, so you, you better be trusting that person. Um, accountability. So it follows a close second to that that trust factor. Transparency, account, accountability, kind of hand in hand. Uh, what are you getting in return for those fees? Um, so accountability. What is the advisor doing for you? Um, the unfortunate or the the sad truth uh, that most people uh, don't really look at their finances. Like I said. They spend more time shopping for a TV or a car, and they don't spend the time on their finances. So, um, spend the time on your finances. Find out uh, or find a, a quality advisor that you can can trust. I'm going to go through a couple little things that that when you're looking for an advisor or a potential advisor, or if you have an advisor now, you should know these things. I'm just going to quickly go through a list. I don't know how much time we have here today, but um, I'm going to try and get through this list. Um, so that to uh, go hand in hand with that—that that transparency, uh, fee transparency. Uh, how does the advisor get paid? So yeah, the the fees might be listed on the statement, but maybe the advisor doesn't make all that that money. And you want to know how much the advisor is getting paid. Um, uh, otherwise, you, you don't know what you're actually paying for in terms of advice, because the investments, the underlying investments in some some of the portfolios that we see have fees attached, but then there's an advisor fee on top of that. So you have to know what the advisor is getting paid, and and if you're getting value for. For that um look at uh there's different types there's fee for service there's flat rate fees there's percentages uh there's there's uh fees for for planning there's fees for the investments there's fees in the underlining investments so make sure you know what what's what there uh regulatory controls so what safeguards are in place to protect your your investments so are there fraud uh has has a company put fraud at uh, front and center, um, CDIC is a is a company that provides coverage for your your assets. Only covers up to one hundred thousand dollars per account. So there are some industry standards that allow you to to have coverage, but you want to make sure that uh, there's there's checks and balances in place. You know, has the advisor ever received any disciplinary disciplinary action? Um, you can check the CFP website. You can check the C or, or the FP. SC website to see if there's been ever any uh, action taken on an advisor. Um, you definitely want to make sure you're dealing with quality advisors um, that, that are remaining compliant. Experience. You know, what what type of licenses does your advisor have? Um, diplomas, degrees, certification. Um, do they do continuing education? Are they current? Are they up to date? Are they reading the tax laws? Are they up to date on all the new changes that are happening? Um, it's very easy in this business to get complacent and, and you've got your clients that you have. And, and if you're not, not constantly updating your education and doing your continue education, um, you get left in the dust really. And there's like Mitchell was talking about this RESP and the changes that are happening with that. Hopefully there's more changes to come. There's different the tax free savings accounts were introduced not too long ago. So there's lots of accounts that are out there. If you if you're not updating or not keeping up with the with the times, um, you might see that with some advisors that they're not keeping up with with their education. So uh, make sure that that your your advisor's current. Uh, communication. So with when you're meeting meeting with an advisor, uh, if you have expectations to meet with your advisor every month, and that's not what the advisor can, can provide, you definitely need to have that open dialogue to say, okay, what are my expectations? I'm paying X amount for a fee. How many times am I going to meet with you? how often can we, can we, can we meet, how often are we reviewing the plan? How often are we reviewing the investments? Is it face to face? Is it a phone call? Is it, is it virtual? What's comfortable for you? So you really have to go through all these checks and balances to make sure that your expectations are met and that the advisor can meet those expectations. So if you've got certain expectations and the advisor can't meet that from the day one, it's not, it's not going to be a good fit. So definitely want to look at those types of things. Um, Access to information. So um, do you have access online statements? Do you have access to your online plan? Mitchell was mentioning earlier about the the LPP or the living plan portal. Um, So it's basically just a living plan. Gives you a comprehensive look at what your situation is. Our software at our company allows you to, to view this online at any time. You can tinker with some of the, the variables in the plan. So adjusting your retirement dates, adjusting how much you save on a monthly basis, things like that, um, allows you to get a good snapshot of where you are. If if some agencies aren't providing that and that's what your expectations are, you have to know that before getting into getting into that relationship with it, with an advisor. And I say relationship because that's what it is. You know, Don and I uh, mentioned Mitch, Mitch Gary, um, Don and Gary, slightly longer than me, um, you know, they've got 30 year relationships with these clients and. They become family and we're investing a lot of time. If you're investing 30 years with a client, they're investing time with you. You're investing time with them. You got to make sure it's a good fit. Um, So again, that communication factor, I can't stress that enough to know exactly what what the expectations are. Um, Again, going back to access to information. So websites um how interactive is it how interactive do you want to be do you want to look at your stuff all the time um is it user user friendly uh statements when are they sent out are they sent out quarterly Are they sent out annually what do you expect are they sent out monthly um detailed reporting so um, detailed reporting of your fees detailed reporting of your actual investments what's actually being reported to you is it enough for you or not um Strategies uh, from a planning perspective, looking at looking at what's important to you from an information or a data gathering perspective. Yeah, go ahead, Mitch.
3: Yeah, I know you're mentioning access to information, and that's that's vital. Uh, I know we have a great new software called CapIntel, and it what it allows us to do is take a prospect or even a client's portfolio and put it on to the software and we're going to be able to compare it to all sorts of different benchmarks, different funds. Uh, I know gold is a really hot one to compare against this year. Everyone wants to get into gold, even though it's at almost at all time highs, if it's not today. And so you can compare historical returns of gold, silver, your mutual funds, how it would compare for the last 10, 25 years, and also the fees that are part of that as well. So. Having that extra information on top of the planning software just creates so much more trust with your advisor as well as clarity. And it also is forward looking as well, because just because gold's doing well right now, well, do you want to get it at all time highs? It's typically not the best thing to do. You want to buy it when things are low. So sure. if your mutual funds are kind of lagging in the return there and our software showing that, well, then you don't really want to jump ship and move into gold. So having your advisor that has access to that really just adds to the experience for your relationship with them.
2: Yeah, and again, that's a good point, Mitch. You know, this cap until Intel, Intel program—it's—it's it's intuitive and it's—it's it's handy to have. And there's a lot of do-it-yourselfers that are out there doing doing themselves uh, a disfit, disservice, I guess, but not talking to someone and, and getting that value of advice. So someone buying gold now because it's at an all time high is, you know, the cardinal sin of, of investing. You don't want to buy high when, when things are high and, and, and an advisor steps in and says, you know, it takes the emotion out of it and, and holds your hand a little bit and says, listen, this is what's going on. And does a full analysis of maybe not the last six months, what's gone on with gold or the last six, six years, but you know, the last 30 years, what's gone on with gold or, or any other, uh, any other sector. So yeah, that person that bringing it into the, my next point is personalized service meeting with, your advisor and actually having that one-on-one discussion and having wholesome conversations and saying, okay, this is what I think. Um, What do you think? And having an educated conversation, just because you think one way doesn't mean the advisor thinks the other way. Sometimes they'll support your decision. Sometimes they'll, they'll, uh, they'll, they'll go against it, but at least you've got that second set of ears or eyes to look at what's going on. Um, You're not the only person in this and and doing it on your own sometimes can be scary, uh, especially when you're dealing with your life savings. Um, That personalized service, again, taking a team approach. So when you're dealing with an advisor, does he have a team or she have a team? Um, Do they have people that they can count on? You know, your, your dad's away on vacation right now. The rest of us are here and we're taking care of of the, taking care of the ship um, i'll go away on vacation you'll go away on vacation there's always someone here to take care of take care of our clients so you want to make sure that you've got a team in place um, it's just not a one-man show or one woman show um, your investment philosophy so what kind of investment philosophy does your advisor have um, what approach it should be clear and concise are they chasing returns are they buy and hold are they active versus passive value versus growth small cap large cap hybrid of something like that so you want to make sure that that, um, the advisor is very transparent on how they do their investing and how they do their advice um, client profile. So what is that advisor looking for? Is the advisor looking for you as a client? So it's gotta be a, a uh, I call it a discovery meeting when it, when we sit down with our clients, is it, is it a good fit for the advisor? And is it a good fit for the client? So it has to be mutual um, if it's just a good fit for the client or just a good fit for the advisor. And maybe it's not the right fit. Um, client experience. So, um, what client service? Again, coming back to that, what's what's the philosophy of the advisor in terms of what level of service they're going to provide? And that should be very uh, professional. First of all, obviously, in our business, want to make sure that we have professional and and courteous advice, but. Uh, how is it monitored how is that client experience monitored and how are how are we judging ourselves against the benchmark or against other advisors um, and then the last thing is succession so as your advisor if you've got a, an older advisor and he doesn't have a team and you know he's in his 70s and you're in your 30s how long are you going to have this advisor around for like i said we've got relationships for the last 30 years um, with a lot of our clients and you know they're, they're thinking okay what's the next step so you want to make sure that the advisor you're dealing with has a proper succession plan so that you're being handled uh, effectively going forward
1: uh, for years to come. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Jay Llewellyn and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. We're going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back.
0: You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.
1: We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Mitch Fox and Jay Llewellyn are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at DonFox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905 972 7420. All, all right, Mitch, you sell in May and then just go away. It's that easy?
3: <laughs> well, if you'd be listening to the radio or you look at any market watch, anything like that, I'm sure you'd be seeing in the headlines. And it's it's something that comes up every year. Obviously, around this time, we're in May right now. So people, I think more people actually like to save than actually execute the strategy. But it seems to come up all the time. And so the theory behind this is that sell in may goes go and go away refers to the lopsided historical performance of the stock market in different parts of the calendar historically stocks do their best work between the months of november and april and they tend to slack off a bit between may and october so saying this implies that if you really want to do well for yourself you should get rid of and dump all of your stocks in may and then come back after after halloween and, and buy them all back so of course, it sticks in your brain a lot better than sell in May and come back after you finished up all your Halloween candy. So it's it's very catchy in that sense. However, it's actually it's it's not a great piece of advice for the majority of investors. So the stocks actually don't lose money from May to October. They just gain less. So if you remember, sell in May and go away refused, refers to the seasonal weakness in the stock more, in the stock market. Stocks perform much worse on average between May and October than between November and April. So, but stocks on average have still delivered gains during that May to October period over the past few decades. More recently, the gap in performance between the May to October and November to April has actually been closing drastically. So if you were to look way back, Uh, If the gap was a lot larger than it is right now, but since 1990, the S&P 500 had a positive total return from May to October in 25 out of 33 years. So 76% of the time in that period, you're actually going to get a positive return, which is roughly the same as an annual basis. On average, about we see about one out of every four years is a negative return. So that's roughly around the same as 75% of getting a positive return during those periods as you do on an annual basis. So the whole sell and May and go away thing is a little debunked just right there in general. But if you're to look in the last 10 years, so since 2012, there's actually only been one negative return from April to November. And the average return during those months has actually been 4.6%. And a cumulative return with your dividends, so a total return, of those 10 years has been 81.8%. <laughs> so if you're just quickly, selling, man, quick, yeah.
2: Quickly, Mitch, just thinking about the pandemic in March, 2020, when the pandemic hit, Um, we had some people sell in March uh, or try to sell in March and then try to get back in. And if they would have sold in May or March, um, and waited to get back in in November, uh, catastrophic, um, 30 to 40% losses, um, if they would have done that, that philosophy. So,
3: yeah, Yeah, uh, that was one of the quickest recoveries you'll ever see. Uh, The amount of money that was pumped into the market so rapidly from all those stimulus just got the market right back up and roaring for the next few years. And people that were uh, around and active in the stock market that most of them did not fare so well. Um, So but if you were to sell and may go and go away during that period uh that i was talking about before the last 10 years 81.8% in returns since 2012 which would then actually raise your investments for november which is what we call compound interest your your investments are going to grow in the percent on a larger basis because your value is going to be larger so when you instead of buying it back and you're still at a lower amount your investments are actually grown so then your next when they say that your investments are going to do better in that November to April, it's working on a larger amount, which is compounding. So if you were to look at the 10-year return from November to end of April, and then the returns from May to end of October in the last six years, those months that you bought have averaged 6.5% in total returns yearly. And the months in May, uh, so if you were to from May to October, has averaged 6% in total returns. So it's only 0.5 difference. So when they when they say that they perform worse during those periods, it's not that much. And so it's just a very catchy phrase in this theory to sell away. Is, it's really narrowing. It's not very. It's not that much. The best way to go about this is to invest for your long-term and don't try to time the market because no one no one knows where the market's going to go on an annual basis, let alone on a month-to-month or a season-to-season. Just because it sounds good in theory, sell in May and go away doesn't mean that you should be doing it. Uh, but I do know there are some... Some people, uh, many with cottages, they like to tune out of the market and maybe they just like it sitting in cash. And some do actually, they sell away and they come back at the end of the summer when it's cooler and they buy back after after cottage seasons is done. And sometimes it works out. But why would you want to risk it? You're actually you're looking at a 10 percent chance in the last 10 years that you're going to get it right and a 90 percent chance that you're going to get it wrong because nine out of 10 of those years have been a positive return. So it's actually a form of greed to try to more or less short the market by trying to buy back by things going down. It may give you a peace of mind that you're sitting in cash and if you're sitting at your cottage or you're you're kind of have summer vacation on your mind to be sitting in cash, and you know you're not losing money, but nine out of 10 times that money's going to go up. So why, why take the chance that that 10% is going to be right? Let it sit there. Work for you long-term. Don't try to time the market because it usually comes back to
1: bite you in the long run. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Mitch Fox and Jay Llewellyn are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Another quick break here, and we're back for our
0: last segment. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified,
1: A buy sell agreement. What is this, Jay? Yeah,
2: yeah. So uh, you know, we have a lot of listeners that are, are small business owners or, or corporate clients. So often we our, our 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 communication on this show is about individuals. So I'm just thought I'd dip into uh, corporate. clients buy and talk about a buy-sell agreement. So a lot of people don't. A lot of people that have corporations don't even know what this is. Um, uh, to start with, a buy-sell agreement. You know, we had I had this client, longtime client, that uh, came to me last week, and he said, I, "I've got this corporately owned life insurance policy, and I, I'm not sure if it's valid or, or what's going on." And I said, "Well, let's have a look at your buy-sell agreement." He says, "I don't know if I have one of those. I'm not sure what it is." So a buy-sell agreement is a contract that sets out how a partner shares will be obtained, or or signed if a partner should pass away, uh, leave the business, become disabled, or something like that. So it's basically an agreement between a, a, a partnership or two two partners in business, um, a legal document that says here's what's going to happen if something happens. Um, most often, these buy sell agreements stipulate stipulates uh, how the shares will be sold um, to the remaining partners. So, um, in in the case where if someone passes away, generally those shares are passed on to their estate, so to their children or to their wife or their husband. And, and then uh, the partner has to end up figuring out a way to buy those shares back. Or now he's in partnership with the wife, the husband, or the children. And often that's not such a good thing because if the, if they're not involved with the business, now they're now they're partners in the business that they, they really have no interest in. So what we do is we put, um, we put these buy sell agreements in place or lawyers put these buy sell agreements in place, and then we figure out a way how we're going to fund it. And we fund it through a life insurance policy. Um, So back to back to my client Uh, He purchased a a life insurance policy through his holding company on his partner. His partner purchased one on him. Uh, The operating company was sold years ago. Um, Both partners got their proceeds from the sale of the business. And then one partner decided to keep paying the premiums on this life insurance policy. The other one said, you know what? I'm not worried about it anymore. I'm not paying for those premiums anymore. It's too expensive. So the one partner continued to pay the premiums for years after the business was sold in in this hold co. Um, And then, Lo and behold, last week or, or a couple of weeks ago, sorry, um, the the client passed away or the the other the other partner passed away, and now the partner that had this policy in place is now going to be paid out a million dollars for keeping this policy in place. So he basically insured his partner, and then after the company was sold, he kept the premiums going. Well, uh, a million bucks that he's going to be getting from this policy. Um, it's caused some controversy. Um, there's a catch to it that his family now, or the, the other, the the other side of the family, is now coming after it and saying this was an asset that dad would have had in place, and we want a portion of this, if not all of this, uh, this payout. So the partner was paying the premiums out of his hold co. The family is now debating whether or not um, it's valid or not that that those proceeds may have came from within the operating company at some point. So they're fighting at this point. So I don't know where it's going right now. They're they're in court, believe it or not, um, in the next couple weeks. And, you know, uh, we'll continue with the story. So the point of the story is that most corporations actually don't have these agreements in place. Uh, Most people, if they do have an agreement in place, don't have a way to fund it. So you want to make sure it's very, um, very cut and dry, exactly what your wishes are, exactly what you've got in place, and why you've got it in place. Uh, Putting a plan uh, together with these corporately owned life insurance policies, it's pennies on the dollar that it costs to put put one of these plans in place. And so many people don't do it. Just think about it, if you owned a corporation and your partner passes away, and now you've gotta buy him out for a million dollars or buy his family out for a million dollars and your partner has just passed away, what are the likelihood of the bank gonna lend that company money now that one of the partners has passed away? Especially if he was involved with the corporation on, a, on an ongoing basis. Um, if I'm a lender, I'm not really, inclined to lend money to someone that they just lost their partner. So you want to make sure you have something in place that that takes care of that. So two different things. Again, I, when I was meeting with this client, he said, I think I have key person insurance, or I think I have this, this buy-sell agreement. I'm not sure what I have. So just quickly go through the two differences of what they are. We've only got a little bit of time here. So key person insurance is when you put insurance on uh, either a business owner or a key person in the company, a, a manager or something like that, where you've got coverage on that member uh, in case something suddenly happens where you're unexpectedly passing away. Um, there's money there to, to replace that person in terms of uh, their value to the company or um, or to help secure financing to buy out the shares of the, the other company. Now that's not necessarily part of a buy-sell agreement. So the key person insurance is a, an L Element to the buy sell agreement. The buy sell agreement itself is a is a structure or a document that's written up by a lawyer. Uh, it's a formal uh, formal document uh, or agreement drafted, like I said, drafted by a lawyer uh, with special specific instructions to facilitate a transaction of ownership of the business in the event of one of the owners dies prematurely um, or or disabled. Um, if no planning is done through this agreement, unfortunate and unintended consequences can occur. Like I said, uh, the wife or the or the the husband can take over the business, and we definitely don't want this. So, having a properly drafted, uh, set, or sorry, a properly drafted buy sell agreement um, is crucial. And, and when you have a business, and it's just one of those things, like I talked about earlier in the show, not understanding your finances. If you don't know that you don't have one, um, definitely check in with your lawyer. Check in with one of us, and we can review that for
1: you. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Jay Llewellyn and Mitch Fox have been here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Thank you, gentlemen. Another great show, even with a boss away. Look at you two go. Yeah, Thanks there so we much. Go.
2: There we go. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there
1: and my mom. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day, everybody. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thanks Scott. Right. Have a
0: great weekend.